We are continuing this morning our look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul began, uh, or we began looking at Paul's section, probably a better way to say it, a couple of weeks ago, his section of exhortation, which began in chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, There he urged them uh, to live a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Paul went on, we saw that really he started to land over and over again on this theme of humility, that really what he was urging them to do is have unity in humility. Their unity was uh, to be a union and a unity against outside foes and also a union and a unity against any kind of internal uh, dissension or or a confusion going on, and then he landed then on this mind that he wanted them to have, this mindset of humility. This morning, we continue to look at that, and we come to what is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, as far as most scholars are concerned, undoubtedly the most important and central part of this letter to the Philippians. And it is, in fact, one of the most important sections in the entire Bible. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. As uh, I always say, if you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it and follow along, not only as I read, but keep it open as I go through the sermon so that you can look at individual words and phrases. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one, uh, there should be a Bible in front of you underneath the seat and it'll be in that Bible on page 980 and 981. This is Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul has told the Philippian church, he's told us what humility looks like. When he is instructing us on how to live humbly, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And as I mentioned last week, when we read these words and these instructions, I think for all of us, it's difficult to do. When we read these instructions, it it goes against our natural selfish 
inclinations that we have from birth as we're born with a sin nature. Our natural inclinations are to serve ourselves first, are to go for the biggest thing ourselves, to, if we need to, walk over someone else to get what we want. But we understand the idea, the concept of humility. That's not a shock to us. We understand what it means. We understand what we're called to do. We just find it hard to do. What I mentioned last week and what I think we have to keep in mind is what a shock the concept itself would have been to these Philippian Christians. Because as I mentioned last week, they lived in a Roman era, a Roman society. They were a Roman colony. And the Greeks and the Romans had no concept of humility. In Rome and in the Roman society, you basically either led with power or you served in weakness. There was no concept of having the power, having the, the, the lordship over someone else, and willingly giving it up so that you would serve the person under you. That just didn't exist. And so keep that in mind as Paul is telling them something shocking and difficult. That part of it is, is just part of human nature. Since the fall, we have all found it difficult to be humble and to give for other people. They would have also found the concept itself shocking. But now, given that they already have a, a shocking concept before them, Paul moves in in verse 5 to not only give them the example of what he means, but in doing so, telling them something far more shocking than what he's just told them. Verse 5 is, therefore, a, a sort of transition verse from 2 through 4 into 6 through 11. He says in verse 5, what I mean is this. Now, he's already said a couple of times, I want you to have the same mind. He's used that word already, and now he says, look, here's, the, here's what I mean. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Now, already I have to pause here because that translation that we have in our ESV, it says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's a perfectly fine translation of the Greek. It's, 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 a, it's one way you could translate it, and perhaps that is actually uh, what Paul meant by this phrase. And if he's saying that, then, then what he means is just simply uh, kind of what he says a lot of times, that we've been given certain things in our union with Christ, and therefore use them. Now, he might be very well saying that. You've been given this mind already. Yes, in your natural fallen sin nature, you didn't have it. But now, through your union with Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have a mind in you, and already a mindset, that wants to give of yourself. You still have that battle with the sin nature, but he's saying, use this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. However, you probably have a footnote next to that verse, a little number, and if you look down at the footnote, what you'll see is that an alternate translation, which is the one I think is, is more correct, it's probably the one I think, given the context, Paul's actually saying is, 
Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying is, what, when I tell you to do nothing out of uh, selfish ambition or conceit, when I tell you to think of others as more important than yourself, when I tell you to look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others, what I'm telling you to do is nothing less than what Jesus himself did. That's what I think he's saying here. Your attitude, the NIV puts it, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus, in other words, is our ultimate example of humility, as verses 6 through 11 are going to demonstrate, particularly verses 6 through 8. If you look, look at verses 6 through 11, I think you can pretty easily divide that into two sections, verses 6 through 8 and 9 through 11. 6 to 8, you could summarize as the son's humbling of himself. And verses 9 through 11 is the father's exalting of the son. The son's humbling of himself leading to the father's exalting of the son. And as we look at these verses this morning, I want us to contemplate these three questions. There are so many ways you can look at these verses. Uh, they're so deep. They're so rich. I could preach for months on these verses. But as we look at them uh, for this one sermon, I want us to look this way at these three questions. First, where did Jesus begin? Second, where did Jesus go? And third, where does Jesus end? So where did Jesus begin? Verse six. Again, following up on verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, verse six, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul here is speaking about Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. The reason we know this is because he's about to, in verse 7, speak of him becoming incarnate, meaning taking on human flesh. In his pre-incarnate state, therefore, Paul is saying, Jesus was, or existed, that word could, could mean, existed in the form of God. <clears throat> that word is, is hard to translate. It, it can mean form. But what we have to understand here is that by saying form, Paul is not saying physical shape. When he says Jesus was in the form of God, He's not saying God had the form of a man and Jesus was in that same form. God the Father does not have a body. He is invisible. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Colossians 1.15 Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when Paul says from all eternity Jesus was in the form of God, what he means, and this word can include, is more something like the nature or the essence or the attributes. We see this at other points in the New Testament. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. There you see a distinction being made between this one that John is calling the Word and this other one that he's calling God and yet saying at the same time the Word was with God and the Word, though distinct, was nonetheless uh, exactly like God with the same attributes. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, again the invisibility of God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Hebrews 1.3, which we read earlier, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again and again, we see this concept that Jesus, prior to the incarnation, had and was in every way exactly the nature, the glory, the attributes of God the Father. The NIV, I think, again, puts it really well. The NIV translates this this, uh, phrase here in verse 6 who being in very nature God. I like the way that that, that that puts it. Perhaps the best verse we have for this is from Jesus' own mouth. In his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5, he prays to the Father, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So when we examine the humility of Christ, his example of humility, it's so important that we begin where Scripture begins, which is really that God the Son had no beginning. God the Son, strictly speaking, from all eternity, existed in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, And in that relationship, he shared with them the glory and the honor and the praise that they and only they have and deserve. That's where he began. I asked myself this week, where do I begin? As I think about the call to my own humility, as I think about the 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 call that God has put on my life and on me to think of others as more significant than myself, where is it that I begin? Think about your own story. Where do you begin? It's interesting when you go to certain places, you kind of find out uh, from the locals who the locals think are more important or more high class or what have you than than, than, than others, and kind of everyone acknowledges that. Uh, when I came here, I didn't know the difference between Chester County and Delaware County. It didn't take long before I heard people say, yeah, I don't really shop there. It's got kind of a Delco feel to it. Feels kind of Delco. After like 15 times of hearing that, I said, what does that even mean? What is Delco? I come to find out it means essentially that in my neck of the woods, you're from Glen Burnie rather than Severna Park. Now, I married a girl who went to a, a college prep uh, private school in Severna Park, Maryland. I went to a public school in Glen Burnie. 
We were from opposite sides of the track. It's a wonder she still wants to, wanted to marry me. I mean, <laughs> probably embarrassed her. Uh, the point is, though, when you read this text, wherever you're from, whatever your beginning is, however high class you might think it is, it pales in comparison to where Jesus began. We try to wrap our minds around who Jesus is, and it's impossible. Jesus is the incomprehensible God creator of all things. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The entire universe would fall apart were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he began. Where did he go? The answer to that question begins in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That phrase, something to be grasped, it means something to be held onto for personal advantage. The Greek word, it, it means something seized, something retained by force. Especially one Greek lexicon says, something retained by force that someone has a rightful claim to. What Paul is stressing here is that what Jesus didn't seize by force, he had every right to. What Jesus gave up, he could have retained. He had every right and he had all the power to retain the glory that he shared with the Father. Notice that it doesn't say that he was emptied. In verse 7, it says he emptied himself. If Jesus hadn't chosen willingly to let go of his glory, what force in the universe could have made him do it? A couple of weeks ago, I remember James, I found out, I think it was James, uh, mentioned uh, something that he did that I thought it kind of astounded me. I, I said, wow, James, that was so thoughtful of you to do that. That's amazing. I, I was going to tell Michelle to give him a stick. We have this like kind of that sounds terrible. It sounds like, you know, he's like, he's going to get beaten. No, it's actually a little colored stick that you put in a cup, and they get so many of those, they get a prize or an ice cream cone or something like that. And I was going to tell Michelle to give him a stick, and then he said, actually, Mommy kind of made me do it. So kind of got rid of all of the, not all of it, but most of the praise. Uh, nobody made Jesus do anything. Nobody could have made him do anything. No power on earth could have done it. Instead, verse 7 said, rather than clinging on to this with, with all his might, what was his by right, instead, verse 7, he emptied himself. What does it mean that he emptied himself? 
Some will say, well, he ceased to be God. Or he lost part of what made him God. That can't be. It's impossible. It's impossible because God is what we call simple. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't complex. Obviously, he's far more complex than anything we could ever think or imagine. For those of you in my theology group, uh, if one of you wants to stand up and define, just kidding, uh, no, if you're in my theology group, you know what simple means. Simple means that God isn't comprised of parts as we are and as created things are. What do I mean by that? I mean that I could lose a physical attribute like sight or I could lose the ability to walk and I would still be me. I could lose a, a character trait that I have. I could one day be a real jerk to everyone around me and not be righteous to the people around me and I would still be me. I would just be me being sinful rather than righteous. That can't be true of God. God is simple. It means he's all of his attributes all the time. If God ever ceased to be any part of himself, he would cease to be God and he can't cease to be him. When it says that Jesus, who was fully God, emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he lost any divinity. Augustine says this, Jesus emptied himself not by changing his own divinity, but by assuming our changeableness. I like the way the King James Version puts it. He made himself of no reputation. That's what it means. The one who had the perfect reputation made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. How? By adding humanity. Verse 7 defines it. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That word servant means slave. Again, you see form here. You see it paralleling. He was in the form of God and he made himself in the form of a slave. He took on the attributes. He he left the throne of glory and he added to himself a veil. Calvin says that he could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time. He laid aside his glory, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. How? By being born in the likeness of men. It's what we call the incarnation. It is utterly unique in the history of this world. John 1, 14, the word, the word that was with God and the word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. That same word didn't cease being the word, but he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And when that happened, what we have to understand is that when that, when that happened, God the Son who forever in all eternity was the Son and continued as Son, he added to himself a relationship with the Father that he never had before. He didn't cease being the Son. You always heard him say, I'm here to do my Father's will. 
What he added by adding flesh is that he made himself not just a son, but also a slave. He made himself a slave to God the Father, bound under the law of God that he had written and obligated to obey that law perfectly as man. And when we understand where he began, then we realize that all Jesus would have had to do is do this part of it. And it would have been by far infinitely the most humble thing anyone has ever done in the history of the world. That if all Jesus had ever done is leave his throne of glory, take on flesh, something that he created, and take on the the burden of being a slave to his father in a world like this, fallen, it's infinitely more humble than anything you or I would ever be asked to do. I've tried to even imagine something even akin to this. And the closest thing I've ever come up with is if I, you know, as a kid, you watch ants building an anthill. And if your next door neighbor you see is watering the ground and you see this river of water coming towards this anthill that they've worked for, you know, days to build, and you want to tell them to get out of the way and move the anthill over here, or else they're going to get swept away by a flood, and you decide to become an ant to speak their language and help them out. That's the closest thing I can come up with, but even that doesn't even compare. Because by becoming an ant, you are leaving creaturehood and joining creaturehood. What Jesus did was take on that which he created. The the impassable one became passable. The one who could not suffer became the one who suffered every day of his life. Well, if that is shocking, then what Paul goes on to say is way beyond that. Because in verse 8, he says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of all human beings born throughout the history of the world, there was one born who his sole reason for being born was to die. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says that his obedience led him to death. When he came to earth, he came on a mission to obey his Father, and part of his obedience sent him to the cross. But you see, if if death was all he did, that would be humbling enough. But Paul goes on to say he died this one who existed from all eternity and unmatched glory went to death on a cross. Now we, living this side of the cross, see the cross now as a symbol of sacredness. We see the cross now as it is cleaned up. We see the cross hanging around people's necks. We see it adorning buildings. We see the cross as something precious. But these Roman citizens would have seen the cross far differently than we do. 
Roman historian Tacitus. He called crucifixion, I've always found this to be gut-wrenching. He called crucifixion the most terrible of punishments that human cruelty has ever devised. One New Testament scholar says it's very hard for us today to feel shock value at the way the first century readers would have. Listen to this. Scholars have worked through all references in the ancient world from 200 B.C. to A.D. 200 that mention the cross or that mention crucifixion. Every reference has been found. Without exception, it is mentioned for shock value. It is mentioned to be disgusting. The Romans, he says, had many different ways of executing criminals, but crucifixion was the disgusting one. That was the one designed for shame. You couldn't do it to a Roman citizen without the express sanction of the emperor himself. It was for slaves, anarchists, and disgusting foreigners. One scholar says, corpses cut down from the cross would routinely be cast into a ditch to be pecked at by birds and eaten by dogs. Those crucified were garbage. I mean, just think of that. The Lord of glory was willing to be treated as human garbage. Brothers and sisters, if, if Jesus is our example, then none of us ever has a right to utter the words, that's beneath me. Well, fortunately, the story didn't end there. Where does Jesus end? Well, verses 9 to 11 tell us. Therefore, because... He was obedient even to death on a cross because he finished what he came to do. She said on the cross, it is finished. God the Father has highly exalted him. And then you see the amazing parallelism of this passage. That Jesus started in infinite glory he went down to infinite shame and he has been raised up to infinite glory again. God the Father has highly exalted him. That Greek word means to exalt beyond measure. Jesus has been exalted by God himself beyond measure, infinitely. He is returned to where he belongs. Only now there's a difference. Because of the incarnation and because of the crucifixion, because of the resurrection, Jesus, who as a human never stopped being God, now that he has taken on human flesh, is now and ever will remain God and glorified man. As God... He always possessed the name that is above every name. What name is above every name? It's God's name, Yahweh. 
as translated, the Lord. As God, Jesus always had that name. He was the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush and said, I am who I am. Jesus possessed that name when he was clothed in flesh, when his glory was concealed. That's why he could look his opponents in the eye and say, before Abraham was, I am. But you see, now that he is the died and risen and exalted, glorified man and God, He has gone from being labeled slave and servant and garbage to as glorified man being given the name that is above every name. Jesus always had that divine name. But what he always possessed as God, Jesus now receives as man. And why was he given that name? Why was this man who was once crucified given the name Yahweh? Paul tells us, so that one day, when this man returns, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul makes it clear that he means every single knee and every single tongue. He makes it clear by describing all categories that exist in creation. He says every tongue in heaven. The Bible talks and tells us about the heavenly rulers and authorities. When Paul talks about every tongue in heaven, he means the heavenly beings. Every angel, every demon, even Satan himself. Brothers and sisters, if you're like me, sometimes it seems that Satan is winning. Have you ever looked around in a particular day and seen what is happening in this world and think to yourself, is Jesus really on the throne? Did he really win? Seems that Satan is having a field day, and perhaps he is. Perhaps for now he is. What Paul tells us here is that we need to take heart because one day, even Satan himself is going to bow the knee. Satan himself will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Paul says, every tongue on earth That means every one alive when Jesus returns. Whatever station they have in life, whatever they have going on, however much money they've made, when Jesus returns to earth, whoever is alive on that day will immediately bow the knee to their Lord and their Maker. I ask you, Have you, as you sit here today, already proclaimed that he is Lord? Maybe you're sitting here today thinking, I don't know that I want to. I don't know that I should. Maybe I like being my own Lord. 
Well, that's going to be a temporary position for you. Because, believe it or not, one day you're going to. You're either going to do it now out of gratitude and love, or you will forcibly do it then out of abject fear of the one who made you and of the one who is about to judge you. And it won't just be those who are alive when he returns. Paul says, everyone under the earth, every single human being who has ever lived will be raised from their grave, will be raised from the dust, and will stand and then bow before their maker and their Lord. Jesus should, he had the power to raise the dead when he walked the earth no problem for him when he comes back he'll just raise everyone and when he does that i don't care who it is hitler is going to bow before the lord jesus christ stalin is going to bow before the lord jesus christ pol pot will bow before the lord jesus christ nero will bow before the lord jesus christ Pilate will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Roman soldier that drove the nails into his hands, that spit in his face, that pulled out his beard and that punched him and mocked him will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He promised it would happen. Go back to our call to worship from Isaiah. Isaiah, speaking for God, says, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who formed the earth, who made it, I am the Lord, there is no other. And by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. We're just waiting for that day to happen. And when Jesus is worshipped, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord, Paul says it will bring glory to God the Father. How can someone else being worshipped bring glory to God? Well, because when Jesus is worshipped, God is worshipped. Brothers and sisters, I long for that day. I long for that day to arrive, but what we have to remember is that that day has not yet come because God has suspended his judgment. As we go through each day and we look at what's going on in the world, we look at what's going on in our own lives, we we struggle with sin and we struggle with pain and we struggle with suffering and, and all the kinds of things that this world brings to us. And we say, Lord, just how long? Please return today. I want to be done with all of this so I can go home and be with you. When you you start thinking that way, remember that he hasn't done it yet because his judgment is suspended. And it is suspended so that others can come into the ark of Christ before the flood waters begin. If you think of it this way, 
every knee and every tongue is going to confess, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, that means that every tongue, tribe, and nation, no matter where they're from, no matter where they're born, no matter what religion they lived under, at some point, they're all going to profess that Jesus is the one true God and Lord. So if that's true, let's get on with witnessing and being missionaries to the world around us. Better to have them do it now than then. They will one day do it. If we walk around and say, well, I don't want to disturb them. They have their own religion and kind of their own way. And let's just let, you know, everyone's way is kind of right in their own end. And they all kind of get there at the same time, just in different ways. That's not true. Okay? At, at some point, every single person will profess that Jesus is Lord and no one else. So if they're going to do it then, we may as well present it to them now so that they can do it willingly out of gratitude for their Savior. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility because he willingly went from infinite heights to infinite depths. I said, well, why did he do it? I mean, I wouldn't have... I put myself... Just thinking of, of who I am now, not even being the Lord of glory and, and thinking about having to go to, a, to the cross and be crucified and be mocked and be put to shame. I don't know if anything could compel me to willingly do that. So what compelled him? If he had to do it willingly, no force could have. Well, he had promises to keep. Paul says in his humiliation, Jesus took on the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And I think in one sense, we can think of it exactly the way we just spoke of it. But in another more profound sense, and I, I almost wonder if Paul was thinking this when he wrote this, that, that when he says Jesus took the form of a servant and Jesus was born in the likeness of men, I almost wonder if in Paul's mind he was thinking Jesus took the form of the servant. Jesus took the form of the man. Because if we go back in the Old Testament, we see that after the fall, when we needed to be rescued from our sin, God did something unimaginable. He could have just wiped Adam and Eve off the face of the earth and been done with it. And instead he made a promise. He promised that one day he would send the man. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There was a man to come. What man would it be? Well, he would not only be a man, he would be the servant the one Isaiah calls the suffering servant. This suffering servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That call to worship from Isaiah, where God says, I am the only God, there are none beside me, and one day every knee is going to bow and pro proclaim allegiance to me. 
just in between those two lines, in between him saying, I'm God, there's no one like me, and one day everyone's going to bow, he says something really interesting and shocking. He says, I am God, there's no other God besides me, I am a righteous God and a Savior. Turn to me and be saved. How can this God also be a Savior? How can he keep that promise? Well, to become a savior, he had to take upon himself the form of a servant and the likeness of men. And what's really shocking is that what Scripture tells us is that it was on the cross that even the form of man that he took was wiped away. It was on the cross that Scripture says his appearance was so marred. It was beyond human resemblance. In his incarnation, Christ took the likeness of men, but in his crucifixion, he lost even that. In his crucifixion, he became truly the only person who has ever gone through hell on earth. You know, we have a children's book that I've read to all my kids, and uh, the title of it is Guess How Much I Love You. Some of you have probably read it. It's a parent rabbit and and a child rabbit. And they kind of go back and forth and they say, guess how much I love you? And, you know, it starts out kind of saying, you love me this tall or you love me as, as tall as I am. And then it gets even more and more exaggerated. And then finally, uh, it gets to uh, something like, well, uh, I love you uh, to the moon and back. And so it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and I've read that to my kids, and, and Eva, now when I tuck her in, we'll, we'll, we'll have that own, our own little game of that. And, and sometimes Eva will go as far as she can possibly say and say, I love you, something like, to the universe and back. The interesting thing is no matter what we say, our level of love is always finite. I can't... I can't promise her that I love her more than the universe and back. But Christian, if God were to look at you and say, guess how much I love you? All you need to do is look at the cross behind me. He gave us a tangible example of his love, and that love is the only infinite love that has ever been. God and God alone can truly say, I love you with an infinite love. Because I left my infinite glory and I went to the infinite depths of hell for you. I'll close with this. Isaiah, talking about God Uh, being a prophet of God, he says, Sing, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Bring forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, 
The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Do you ever think that way sometimes, Christian? Do you ever think, I've gone through so much, God has to have forgotten me? Well, Scripture says this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? The question answers itself. Can a woman forget her nursing child? God's saying, absolutely not. That's crazy to even think that. But then he says this. But even though she may forget, yet I will not forget you. Though the nursing mother may forget her child, as crazy as that is, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Lift up your eyes and see. All flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer. Brothers and sisters, you are loved with an infinite love, and one day when Jesus returns, the whole world is going to know it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this amazing passage. Thank you for the reminder of what you've done for us. And Lord, we pray that you would impress that upon our hearts now that we may never forget the love that you showed us on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.